Welcome everyone to Kremlin File, and we are welcoming back Bill Browder. Great to be here. The last time, actually, that we spoke uh, was a year ago. It seems like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? We would like everyone to go back to that episode if you haven't heard it. Please, please, and also pick up Red Notice. You also have a new book out, but we're going to get into that towards the end. Okay, of our chat, Freezing Order. So congratulations, because it was on the bestseller list. Just for our purposes here, Bill, could you give us just a little bit of a brief? So I um, I was once the largest foreign investor in Russia. I went out there after the Berlin Wall came down. It was, uh, I went to Russia as a um, rebellion against my family. My grandfather was the head of the American Communist Party. So I thought I was going to go to Russia to become the biggest capitalist. And, and I ended up um, in a certain way doing that. I set up this investment fund for the Hermitage Fund. It became the largest investment fund in the country. Trouble was that all these companies I was investing in were all getting ripped off by the oligarchs and corrupt officials. And so I tried to figure out a way to stop them. And the only thing I could come up with was to uh, research how they did the stealing and then share that research with the international media. And so I started doing what I called naming and shaming campaigns of my stealing analysis and as you can imagine, if you're one of the guys stealing billions of dollars of money out of Gazprom or Sparebank or wherever, um, you weren't too happy about Bill Browder. And in um, November of 2005, I was expelled from the country. They declared me a threat to national security. Uh, 18 months after I was expelled, my offices were raided by the by the Russian Interior Ministry. Um, they also raided my law firm's office. I used an American law firm out there. They seized all of our corporate documents. And then the documents were used in a complex fraud in which they stole $230 million of taxes that my firm paid to the Russian government. I had a young lawyer. His name was Sergei Magnitsky. Sergei was the one who discovered the fraud. He was the one who exposed it. He was the one who testified against the officials involved. And in retaliation, he was arrested by the same officials he testified against, um, put in pretrial detention. Uh, They then tortured him in all sorts of horrible ways to try to get him to to retract his testimony. They wanted to get him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million. Uh, He was a man of such principle, he refused. Um, And uh, the torture just got worse and worse. He ended up getting really sick. He ended up losing 40 pounds, developing pancreatitis and gallstones, needing an operation. They refused him all medical attention. And then on the night of November 16, 2009, he went into critical condition on that night. Instead of um, sending him to the emergency room, uh, they put him in an isolation cell, chained him to a bed, and eight riot guards with rubber batons um, beat Sergei Magnitsky until he died at the age of 37. This was uh, November 16, 2009, uh, about 12 and a half years ago. And since his murder, I've made it my life's work to go after the people who killed him to make sure they face justice. And, and uh, uh, for the last 12 and a half years, I put aside my life as a businessman and I've spent all of my time, all of my resources and all of my energy going after these people. And that's culminated in a piece of legislation called the Magnitsky Act. The Magnitsky Act freezes the assets and bans the visas of the people who killed Sergei, the people who commit uh, other gross human rights abuses in Russia, And uh, since 2016, the Magnitsky Act has been globalized to go after bad guys everywhere in the world. I also went to other countries. I went to Canada, to the UK, to the European Union, 
at the various Baltic states, uh, Australia. Uh, there are now 34 countries that have Magnitsky Acts around the world, and it's the template which is now being used to go after the oligarchs and go after the people involved in the Ukraine war. And so what started as a, a terrible tragedy for, for Sergei, for his family, and for me um, has ended up creating a tool for the whole world in, in terms of getting some 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 type of justice in a, uh, when, when the Russians are doing this horrible things. Yeah, yeah. actually, Bill, we're working on it here in Italy, just to give you some news, uh, with some other people as well. So we're going to be bringing that, okay, forward, all right, into the Italian parliament when we're working very hard, okay, to get that done. Because in 34, oh, no, no, thank you for getting this all together and for bringing this to the, for, to the forefront. Um, what, because I know there were sanctions before, Bill, Okay, what's the difference between the older style sanctions and the Global Magnitsky Act? Well, so the older style sanctions um, are sanctions against a whole country. Most people would be familiar with sanctions against Iran. The, so the United States got upset with Iran. The United States imposed sanctions on Iran. And what that meant was like nobody could do business with anybody in Iran. And you couldn't sell to them, couldn't buy from them. And it was a very blunt instrument and, and in a certain way, um, not a very effective instrument because you punish everybody in the country. And most of the people in the country are actually, you know, living under, you know, uh, their victims or their sort of ho hostage to a dictatorship run by a criminal regime. And uh, when we first started talking about the Magnitsky Act, <clears throat> no, there was no chance that we were ever going to get the Western world to, like, stop doing business with Russia. And so we said, well, wait a second. We don't have to do that. That's very inefficient. Most, we don't want to target the average Russian person. We want to target the people who committed these terrible crimes. And so what, what's unique about the Magnitsky Act is it goes after the specific individuals who do the terrible things. <clears throat> and so, you know, you, you, if you were to, like in the, the Iranians, they were, the elite were flying in, you know, sports cars and caviar and champagne on private jets for themselves while everyone else was starving. Well, now we're going after the specific people buying the, the sports cars, the caviar, and the champagne. And, and, and let me tell you, there's nothing that makes these people more nervous, more upset, and, and more enraged than the idea that, that all of their uh, ill-gotten gains can be frozen uh, and they can no longer have access to them. That, that's like, the you know, next to actually putting them in jail, that's about as bad as you can punish them. Yeah, sure. Well, they're they're they've decided to put all their money in the West, so this is you no know, going after them, right? So it takes away all of their comforts and that kind of thing. Yeah, they, these people spend their whole lives. Uh, uh, let me say something. It's really important to understand this: that nobody goes into government service in Russia um, to serve the people of Russia, from the lowest traffic cop up to the president, prime minister, finance minister. Everybody goes into public service with the exclusive objective of stealing. And, and of course, the traffic cop gets a small amount of money and the president gets an obscene, unbelievable, uh, almost incalculable amount of money. And these people, that's all they care about. That's all the reason, the only reason anyone does this. And, um, you know, if you, if you want to get rich in Russia, you don't, um, uh, you don't try to start a, a tech startup or a private equity fund, you, you, you go to the interior ministry or you go to try to become a government minister. That's how you get rich in Russia. And 
And of course, these people who get rich in Russia all understand that at some point the regime is going to fall and it's not a very safe country and the property rights and laws don't exist. And so the moment they steal the money, they want to then park that money in a place where there is a rule of law, where there are property rights. And so what do they do? They set up bank accounts in London and Geneva and New York. They buy villas on, on the uh, front line of uh, south of France and Saint-Tropez and Villefranche. Um, they send their kids to boarding school in Switzerland and their girlfriends on shopping trips to Milan. And um, this has created this unbelievable leverage because um, on one hand, they do the most heinous things you can imagine. And we've seen with, seen that with our, everybody's seen that with their own eyes on Ukraine. Of course, I saw it a lot earlier um, with what happened to Sergei. Um, and then they try to like enjoy all these great freedoms and protections we have in the West. And, and so now all of a sudden, um, the thing that they most value, they most covet is their money and and their travel, of course, to use their money. And we've now created a tool to take that away from them. And, and when the Magnitsky Act was passed, it just completely lit up the Moscow sky. Putin was enraged like you can't even imagine. He, um, uh, in retaliation, he banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. He uh, made it a single largest foreign policy priority to to repeal the Magnitsky Act, and he started coming after me personally in every way you can imagine. Yeah. The adoption part is actually important, Bill. Why is it that he targeted? Because here at Clement Fire, we say that he weaponizes everything, including adoptions. Why is that important to, to underscore? Well, you need to know, understand what's, what, what the adoption program was all about. So in Russia, um, they, have, they had a lot of... Um, <clears throat> Uh, you know, parents that were alcoholics and, and, you know, just destitution and all sorts of terrible things, social problems, and many more orphans than they have in uh, per capita than in other countries. And, um, and the orphans, and, and so the Russians uh, had a pretty wide ranging adoption program and, and, but they would, they would, they, they, and they would specifically put up the sick, infirm and other, you know, uh, uh, frail, orphans for Americans to adopt, kids with um, H born with HIV or fetal alcohol syndrome or Down syndrome or spina bifida, all sorts of really, you know, horrible things. And Amer American families would come in the thousands, and I'm talking literally the thousands, and adopt these children, um, bring them back to America, and provide them with the medical care that they need so they could live a normal life. And, and, um, and they would come with open hearts and open arms and take these children away. And the really heartbreaking part of this adoption ban is that the Russian orphanages are just have no resources. They have no money. And because they have no resources and no money, they don't have staff and they don't have the facilities to treat these children. And so oftentimes uh, a child with a treatable ailment in an, in an orphanage would die from that ailment if they were left in the orphanage. And so by banning the adoption of Russian orphans, Vladimir Putin was effectively sentencing his own orphans to death. That's to make a point. And it was kind of like, you know, the, you know uh, don't do that or I'm going to shoot myself kind of thing. It's, I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, uh, I mean, first of all, it's just heinous beyond belief. I mean, these, were, these orphans have no voice. Nobody is there to protect them. They don't have no families, no parents. No, and, and then Vladimir Putin, this horrible man is, is saying, no, you can't go with these families that have already chosen you. A lot of these kids had like already, you know, had the, they were like, you know, their parents had like decorated their rooms back in, in Texas and Illinois, and, and they were going to be stuck in these orphanages. And 
some of them would die. And I mean, it's just the most heartless thing you could possibly imagine. And it's interesting because um, I lived in Russia for 10 years. And, and if you like to bring a baby into a restaurant, they're like, you know, they're really very child friendly. It's, it's a country that actually loves children. And so for him to like kill children, and it, it just, you know, goes against everything in Russian culture. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's good, taking from the Soviet system where they have zero regards for human life and, you know, will we'll volunteer. And we're seeing it in the war now where they're throwing untrained uh, conscripts onto the front lines and could care less, you know, if, if a million Russian Russians die in, in this uh, genocide campaign of Putin's. You know, you get brainwashed, brainwashed to hate the West. And, and, and with Putin, he's been indoctrinating even into a more violent nationalist, you know, ultra-nationalist movement. And I mean, the whole thing, it, it's horrible. And it's the children and innocent people who are the victims always. And now let's get to a little commercial break. Did you know that NORPASS conducted a global research study in over 50 countries? And I could not believe the results. They found what the most common password was, and it was 123456. Now tell me, what hacker cannot find that password? That's why it is so important to have unique passwords, and NORPASS is the perfect place to store them so you never forget them and you can easily change and update your passwords very frequently as advised by every cybersecurity expert. I mean, look, for me, NordPass has been a lifesaver because I do research, very sensitive research, and, you know, I constantly am getting uh, attempts at someone trying to hack into my, uh, you know, accounts or notifications of someone like uh, probing my accounts. I can, you know, keep all my passwords together in one place. I always know that, you know, they are secured themselves because it was created by cybersecurity experts. And that's it. You can get an exclusive NordPass deal plus one additional month for free here at nordpass.com slash kremlin file or just use code kremlin file together at the checkout bill you've been um advocating for cutting the money flow from russia and as we know over you know the past few decades the money that's been coming out of russia besides being parked in the west has also been used to you know fund terrorist attacks and uh, operations in syria and war uh, russia's war 2014 war in ukraine 2008 uh, war in georgia and basically, you know, the, the, all their operations to subvert democracies around the globe. And I mean, uh, we could go on and on. Finally, the West has woken up. I mean, it took, uh, unfortunately, for Russia to launch a full-scale war of atrocities and genocide in Ukraine for the West to suddenly, you know, pull out all these measures that they quickly put into place and start the sanctions. Do you think they're doing enough? And do you think, um, uh, you know, is Russia finding loopholes? Or are you seeing that? Well, I, let me start by saying that the current sanctions that have been imposed on Putin and his regime in Russia by the West are more dramatic um, and more hard hitting than any sanctions that any country has ever been subject to, which is 
satisfying and beyond what I would have expected in a situation like this. If you had asked me, if, if you said a year ago, there's a hypothetical Russia invades Ukraine, what do you think is going to happen? I wouldn't, I would have not predicted this. Having said that, the fact that we waited 22 years to finally do something um, has emboldened Putin to such an extent that one of the main purposes of sanctions, which is deterrence, didn't work. If you want to deter someone, you don't sanction them after they do something terrible. You try to do it beforehand. So if we had, for example, sanctioned Russia seriously and Putin and his oligarchs seriously after the invasion of Georgia, there's a, there's a, really, a very high probability he wouldn't have gone further. He wouldn't have gone into eastern Ukraine and Crimea. If we had responded you know, in a forceful way then, then he wouldn't have gone where he's gone right now with all these tens of thousands of, of innocent civilians being slaughtered. Um, and so what, and, and, and what I know about Putin, and I know him pretty well because I've been fighting with him for, for 12 years, is that once he, once he embarks on, an, in, on a mission, whatever that mission may be, he never retreats. He never backs down. He only escalates. It's just not in his psychology. It's not in his nature. It's not in the nature of any of these sort of um, sort of brutal post-Soviet characters to do. It's just pure, pure aggression, pure escalation. Therefore, um, the only other purpose of sanctions is punishment. And I think this is, if anything, deserves punishment. He deserves punishment. And when I say punishment, I specifically mean that we want to make sure that he doesn't have the financial resources to continue doing what he's doing. In other words, we need to dry up all the money that he has access to and all the money that he's earning on a daily, weekly, monthly basis so he can't afford to fight this war. And I would say that we're part of the way there in terms of money he has access to. So of the $650 billion of central bank reserves, um, $350 billion has been frozen by the central banks, uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve, the British, the Bank of England, et cetera. And that's powerful. I mean, that's something that no one had ever done before. Um, and it has a dramatic, and I, I, Putin didn't expect it. And all of a sudden, half his, his war chest, his central bank reserves are frozen. That's good. Um, we, we then started going after the people who are his proxies, the people who are his nominees, the ones who hold his money in the West, the oligarchs. Um, and there's some really high value targets hit. The um, Roman Abramovich, Oleg Deripaska, um, uh, Michael Friedman, all these guys um, are uh, on the sanctions list now. Um, and these are people who are sort of enabling the regime um, one way or another. And um, uh, and that's good. The trouble is that that we haven't done a complete job. There's, there's about uh, 118 oligarchs and only about 35. I haven't done the math in the last couple of days, maybe 40 of them are on the sanctions list. And so we're, we're not, you know, why is Vladimir Patanin not on the sanctions list? And um, Deripaska is, for example. Um, so that's, that's a place where there's a problem. But, but the big, big problem is that even though Putin doesn't have access to his savings or the, to the oligarchs' savings, for the most part, um, he still gets revenue and income on a daily basis from the sale of oil and gas. There's about a billion dollars um, every day of Russian oil and gas is purchased by mostly by European countries. And the war costs a billion dollars a day, plus or minus. So, so basically, he could carry on into perpetuity like this. And so there's two ways that we can, we can stop getting him that money. 
One is that the Europeans can stop buying Russian oil and gas. And to a certain extent, there's been some efforts in that direction. The Europeans have said that, they, that starting by the end of the year, they're going to stop buying Russian oil. And that's good. That's, that's not nothing. But that's only 20% of this billion dollars a day. There's still $800 million a day for the purchase of Russian gas. And that's going to be a much tougher nut to crack because there are businesses and countries that are almost fully dependent on Russian gas. I mean, Germany gets 45% of their gas from Russia. Um, you know, Italy gets 100% of their gas from, from Russia. And, um, and uh, so, uh, well, well, good. Well, in, in any event, there's still a lot of, and so there's one other way which, which can, can um, uh, really kneecap Putin. And I, I, I think this is actually a more, uh, long-term and more viable solution, um, which is to make it government policies all over the world, first of all, to lean very hard on all the oil-producing countries of the world to start pumping more oil. Saudi Arabia, for example, is a country that really has no um, logical um, definition to exist. It just happens to be a bunch of guys who sit on a bunch of sand with a bunch of oil. Um, and the only reason that they exist is because uh, from the good graces of the United States of America. If, if the United States wasn't providing a sort of military umbrella for Saudi Arabia, they wouldn't exist. They would be subsumed by a much more violent neighbor in that part of the world. And for them to be tiptoeing around playing footsie with Putin right now is, is not acceptable. And, um, well, I think, I, I, think, I think that pressure is probably too light a word that we should just read them the riot act. And they should pump a lot more oil. And, and, it's, and, for, and it's in their financial interest to pump more oil. And maybe they don't get such high a price per barrel, but they can, they can actually put out uh, quite a bit more oil. Secondly, I think that there should be emergency legislation to like um, uh, get rid of whatever restrictions there are on, on U.S. and Canadian and other oil pr producing companies so they can ramp up whatever oil production is necessary so that that also does. And then thirdly, um, uh, because we don't want to be not concerned about the environment. There should be whatever necessary subsidies and, and so on for alternative energy so that, um, and, and by the way, if we did all that stuff and, 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 and people just, and, and I think this will happen even by itself, that people drive less because it's so expensive, I think the oil price will collapse. And if you look at why, why did the Soviet Union fall apart in the end? I don't believe it's because of Star Wars or Ronald Reagan or any of that kind of stuff. I think the Soviet Union fell apart because of $10, $10 a barrel oil. That basically, they just couldn't afford to keep it going. And so that, I, I think there should be a global Western strategy to bring down the price of oil using whatever government policies are in place. And, and if we were to do that, Putin would be stuck. If oil went down to $30 a barrel, he'd be stuck. That's it. That's all he's got. All he's got is oil. Right now, he's sitting there licking his chops. He's getting more money right now. He, he, Russia Russia's getting $283 billion a day, or about a, a year, um, selling oil. That's up from like 235 billion last year because of what's going on. We have to absolutely prevent him from getting all that money. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, we have to uh, do everything we can because at this point, I mean, right now, uh, you know, directly pretty much Europe is funding the genocide campaign in, in Ukraine, you know, at the same yeah, time. I EU, mean, yes, yeah, we need EU to put is the moving pressure. very slowly. Yeah. Okay, I mean, I've been keeping an eye on, on everything here, but there are so many people, the Germans, for example, but also the Italians, the French, everyone seems to be moving at a snail's pace when we need to move yeah. quickly, right? That's the whole... Each day, each hour exactly. is life. 
Ukrainians are dying. Unfortunately, I don't think any of this stuff is going to happen very quickly. And so in the meantime, of course, what we should do is provide the Ukrainians with whatever weapons they, they need. Um, at the moment, we've provided them with enough weapons in order to um, not lose the war. Um, but we haven't provided them with enough weapons to win the war. And that needs to be what we do. And, and again, it's, it's ramping up, but it's ramping up slowly. And um, and every day that, that it ramps up slowly, more and more yeah. people die yeah. and more and more atrocities. Bill, what's are happening committed. inside Russia? Like, do you have any indication if any of the sanctions that have been placed, whether they are actually having an effect on production or uh, supply lines, other other issues that we don't see? And because I don't know enough about right what happens inside. Do you have any indication? Well, I. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of information because all, all social media um, has been banned. Um, all um, independent journalism has been banned. But we still have little anecdotes and little snippets. So, for example, um, uh, there, I think Putin was talking about this at the uh, St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. And I should say international in, in quotation marks because other than, other than the head of the, other than the head of Taliban and and a few other misanthropes, nobody else showed up. But um, uh, uh, he was making some comment about, um, well, there's no ink to put on our juice, our juice boxes, um, but we're not upset about that. We don't need ink. But there was a, there was a really good um, uh, snippet from BBC um, two days ago, which was talking about the air. air um, it, it was just a summary of uh, articles from the Russian press talking about how, when, when can they start flying again? Because, uh, of course, all the um, planes are Boeings and so on. And they all have, even the Russian planes have Western parts, and they just don't have enough parts to keep these planes flying anymore. And um, and they're they're saying we're going to make our own planes, and it's going to be really great. And um, you know, in like twenty thirty two kind of thing. And so, so I mean, of, of course, this stuff is biting. And there's one place that's going to bite more more importantly than any place else, which is in the oil production area. So they they don't have the technology to to do their own oil service. They, they bring in Western companies to do that. All those Western companies have stopped providing those oil services. And if you look at, for example, why did Venezuela turn into the economic basket case that it was, was because they lost the Western, the, uh, uh, Halliburton and Schlumberger and all the Western oil service companies um, pulled out <clears throat> and their oil prices collapsed. Uh, I mean, actually, their oil pr production collapsed. And as a result, they ended up not having enough money. And that's another way we can really um, hit Putin hard. But again, this is all stuff that's going to happen over time. You know, it's, um, you know, whatever the servicing, you know, whatever field needs a servicing now is not going to have the servicing. And, you know, maybe we'll see the results in three months and six months and one year. And uh, so unfortunately, you know, when a country does something like this, uh, it's not there's no immediate way in which all this stuff is going to affect anyone. And, and the one thing I can say is that we shouldn't expect that the Russian people, no matter how pain, painful it all is, they're going to rise up. At the moment, he's got them all whipped up into a sense of hysteria and um, sort of genocidal hysteria where they think of Ukrainians as being sort of subhuman and, you know, killable. And, um, and that, that's what he's kind of got everybody thinking. And so it's going to be hard to change that. And, and in the, while they're thinking that, um, it's, you know, he's the patriotic leader fighting a foreign enemy, not not the um, crazed psychopath who's led, you know, so many people to their death. Literally like sheep. There was a video circulating yesterday on Twitter 
from Dagestan where they put like, you know, with like hundreds of sheep with the letter Z to show support. And I'm like, that is such a good, like, I mean, <laughs> really, you could replace that with the people and it's, it would be the same thing. Yeah. Um, as far as with uh, London, you know, we all call, well, who follow Who's Russia, dead? call London, London grad because of the amount of money that was parked Just by, you know, uh, people yeah. close to the Kremlin Just and sick. oligarchs and every kind of uh, figure mm -hmm. in Russia. Initially, Britain was slow to enact sanctions. We've seen them kind of ramp it up over, you know, the past few months. Um, but they had this hesitation. Are you seeing an effect now in London um, from the sanctions? Well, yes, yes and no. So, for, so first of all, the British now, I would say, are may perhaps leading um, as opposed to following in a lot of the Ukraine policy. I mean, Britain was one of the first countries to provide weapons um, uh, to Ukraine. And thank God for they did, because the, the Javelin missiles were basically neutralized the tank advantage that Russia had in this war. Um, and Britain took a, I would say, took sort of three weeks to kind of figure it out that, that if they want to like sanction people, they can't just sanction people that no one's ever heard of. They got to sanction the ones who have all the money. And then they started doing that. And, and there's one thing, which again, a lot of people haven't paid attention to, but it's pretty, pretty cool, which is that, you know, so these guys all have these oligarchs all have these big houses in London and it's all very ostentatious and kind of dispiriting for anybody who's, you know, a victim of the regime, but the real money is not held in, um, in any country, it's not held in London or France or whatever. It's held in the Cayman Islands and the British Virgin Islands and Jersey and Guernsey. And what's interesting is that the, um, the the foreign policy of these countries has basically been delegated to Britain. So when Britain enacts Magnitsky sanctions or enacts sanctions against Russian oligarchs because of the war, they automatically copy them in Jersey and Cayman Islands and British Virgin Islands. And uh, you know, so for example, Abramovich. Um, Roman Abramovich, who's one of the um, big targets of the sanctions program, uh, he, he's got a big house in London and that house is frozen, but it's nothing compared to the $7 billion of assets he's got in Jersey and a $7 billion more okay. he's got in the Cayman okay. Islands. And so that's where these guys really are at risk. Speaking of frozen, because this is how they do it, right? They have to freeze. They have to get out a freezing order. Right. Right, Bill. Okay. What is, yeah, what is a freezing order exactly? So that we can get into your book now and you can, you know, explain, well, it's true. No, it gets fascinating. I got through, I ripped right through it and it was, it, it, it read like a thriller, but thinking that this is all financial stuff, this international transnational um, movements of money and you no, know, and that kind of thing and the corruption involved. What is exactly a freezing order? Well, so if you're trying to pursue um, someone's money, whether it's the government pursuing a Russian oligarch or it's me pursuing the people who um, profited from the death of Sergei Magnitsky, um, if you know where their money is, you want to make sure that that money is not available to them. And and so a freezing order is an order gen genu generally issued by a court, um, which um, were and most most of the time organized by a law enforcement agency, which allows uh, allows you to freeze the money before they can spirit it away. And um, after Sergei Magnitsky was murdered, we we, we said we don't want to, we want to make sure that the people who got that two hundred thirty million dollars that he was killed over 
that he that that he exposed and, and was killed over that they can't enjoy that money. And so we've been I've been chasing that money around the world. I have a team of investigators working on it for ten years, and we've figured out where most of that money is. When we do, we we supply that information uh, to the law enforcement agency of the country where the where we found the money, and uh, we file a criminal complaint. And if the if the law enforcement agency is robust and honest, they will uh, issue a freezing order over that money, and then try to uh, seize it, try to forfeit the money. And um, and so we've we've been in a uh, 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 a big battle to do this. And my book, my, my second book, it's called Freezing Order, which is all about this whole process. And what we discovered was that uh, uh, once we started finding the money of, of, of that, that Sergei was killed over, some of it uh, went to Vladimir Putin. And, um, and we also discovered that um, it wasn't just the money from the crime that Sergei uh, was killed over, but a thousand other crimes. And um, uh, and and these people, the Putin regime, were, re- were ready to kill anybody who was involved in this investigation, anyone who was trying to freeze the money, because this was it. This was what they cared about. Yeah. Bill, what kind of tools do they use to stop investigators like you and your team? Um, they start with murder. Um, they murdered, uh, well, first of all, they murdered Sergei Magnitsky. They murdered Boris Nemtsov. Who was involved in our campaign? They tried to kill uh, Vladimir Karamurza, who was involved in our uh, our campaign. They they took um, yeah he's in jail right now. They they threw one of our with the Magnitsky family lawyers off of a building. Um, they've been coming after me with death threats. They tried to have me arrested uh, through Interpol eight times to get me back to Russia so they could kill me. Um, and then, of course, they they also use the the Western legal systems. There's a, there's a term called lawfare, and that's to basically turn um, you know legal and justice and criminal justice on its head. And so, um, uh, for example, when I took the information to the U.S. Department of Justice and they froze twenty million dollars worth of apartments in Manhattan, the um, uh, uh, the lawyers working for the Russians, who actually had been my lawyers before, and just sort of tried, um, uh, uh, then, then then started to use the the power that you the the legal right you have um, to depose witnesses in order to try to subpoena every document that I had, and they started with all of my personal security arrangements <laughs> and and uh, my travel where I traveled to. They wanted to see like every place I'd ever traveled to. They wanted they they, they like wanted to basically, I mean, their list was so long, they effectively wanted me to hand over my entire computer system to them so that they could like plot out, how do you kill Bill Browder? Um, and, uh, and the Russian government, uh, this is how they operate. And they, and I, I've been sued now. This is, I, I've been sued three times um, by Russians or Russian proxies, not in, in addition to all this sort of subpoenaing and nonsense and so on. They made movies about me. They, they uh, they they made uh, something like six primetime documentaries about me, accusing me of every crime under the sun. They've sentenced me um, twice in absentia to eighteen years in Russian prison. They've they've accused me of murdering Sergei Magnitsky officially, the the, the uh, Russian Attorney General. Thank God that Trump hadn't won because they you know the states would have gone along this same line. Or am I wrong? Well, I mean, so it's, I mean, you, you can't imagine how I feel about this. I mean, at the at the Helsinki summit 
in July of 2018, um, uh, Putin asked Trump to hand me over. And he said, I think that's an incredible offer. And this is this is when he was under investigation by Robert Mueller for a collusion with the Russians. And so um, eventually the, the Senate voted 98 to zero not to hand me over. But um, and it didn't happen. <laughs> Um, but what, but 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 what what's really important is that if if Trump had been reelected, you know, with, with no Mueller investigation and no future elections to be worrying about, God knows what he would do. I probably couldn't have traveled to the United States during that four years. And so, you know, if anyone was relieved that Trump wasn't president, it was me. Yeah, no, and they were taking a U.S. into the same system. I mean, literally, Trump, like, picked up his gangster, you know, mafia-style, corrupt, kleptocratic uh, tactics from Russia and were, was attempting to do the same thing, you know, silence journalists by naming them, putting death threats on them. We saw yesterday with the Capitol hearings um, that, uh, you know, he named innocent people, poll workers. I mean, these intimidation tactics is what Russia does. And this is how it started after Putin, you know, took over. It started on a smaller scale where you were intimidating local workers and then it grew into, you know, the monster that it is now. But I mean, it's, it's outrageous. Yeah, it is. It is. In fact, maybe, Bill, the one thing that I noticed is that in all of freezing order, but also in red notice, how important the media and bringing all of this to light constantly. I mean, you were saved by a tweet right in the beginning. I don't want to give anything away so that, you know, our listeners will go out and get your book. And I please, please do, because it's absolutely fabulous. How important is keeping the light on this and keeping, let's say, the information flowing in the media space? I, I always have thought that um, uh, it, it's like this famous expression, if the tree falls in the forest and nobody knows about it, it hasn't fallen in the forest. Basically, nothing no, nothing uh, good happens unless the world knows about it. And the only way for the world know, to know about it is for the media to report it. And um, uh, and it's not always easy. I mean, I, um, there's a lot of competing stories. There's a lot of, um, uh, you know, it's hard, it's hard to, um, to get the attention of the media sometimes. And so, I mean, it's, it's been the crucial part of our whole campaign is, and also a lot of the investigations into money laundering, um, came from journalists that, that, that were involved. I owe a great debt of gratitude to, to journalists, but, and my, in the acknowledgement section of my book, I acknowledge my friends and allies and, Coworkers and 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 even the people in the political establishment who who st- stood by me, but I, I didn't actually um, mention any journalists because that that's their job. It's not like they're doing me any favors by reporting. It's the, it's it's their job to report on what's going on. And and uh, thank God uh, they in the case of Magnitsky and in the case of all this um, blowback from from our justice campaign, um, they continue to report on it. And and that is. Um, and almost entirely why we've been able to get laws passed and get investigations open because everybody understood that this was something in the public interest and they should do something about. Now, um, Bill, now that, you know, the West finally, you know, sees Russia for what it is and is um, ripe and taking actions, what can we do to protect journalists? Because we know that that is one of Russia's like biggest tactics to sue journalists, to intimidate them, you know, and they use our institutions to try to silence uh, journalists who are trying to expose their corruption. What can we do um, to make sure that journalists are protected, that they are not harassed? 
especially ones living in Europe, Canada, U.S., and, you know, in, in any place that has laws. Well, I mean, there's something called uh, the SLAP statute. SLAP stands for a strategic lawsuit against public participation, which is what a lawsuit would be of an oligarch trying to sue a journalist to get them not to report on the oligarch's corruption, as an example. And um, uh, the United, U.S. is actually the most advanced of all the countries in terms of having anti-slap legislation. Having said that, <clears throat> I'm currently being sued by a man named Renat Akhmetshin. He was the second Russian at the Trump Tower meeting. And he, he's suing me for, for um, repeating um, and uh, repeating a statement that he made himself, which was reported on by the Associated Press and NBC News, where he said he was working as a former um, Russian intelligence officer in the GRU. And I just re I just retweeted it and repeated it. And I'm being sued in Washington, D.C. federal court right now. It's been going wow. on for four years as an example. Wow. Wow. Absurd. Well, a, Absurd. a positive example is Carol Codwaller, right, in London, who has won against uh, Aaron Banks. She, well, she, she won. She won after like, yeah. a nearly, uh, nearly exactly. breakdown. I mean, you know, I mean, she they they. It's, it's a, a unbelievable the pain that they put her through, that nobody should go through that. All right, Bill, uh, I just want to remind everyone, okay, about your two, two fabulous books, Red Notice. Okay, if you haven't, if you haven't read the two, start with Red Notice. Yes, it's amazing. You'll read them, take them, you know, if you have a bit of time over the weekend, you want to sit outside with, a, 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 you know, a, a nice tea and sit under a tree. Just read. I'm not kidding because it's absolutely fabulous. So, Bill, we can't thank you enough for coming and talking about all of this. And, and thank yeah. you for what you yes. do. I mean, really, thank you so much because there are many people in your position, you know, who could have moved on and you've made this yeah. your, you know, like Batman, <laughs> your, your life's work to make sure that corruption is exposed and, you know, people pay for for their human rights uh, crimes. Well, thank you. And thank you for what you're doing. Uh, it's a really important um, uh, mission you're on. And, and uh, Monique, thanks for helping out in Italy on the Magnitsky Act. And Olga, thank you for speaking out on a regular basis about these issues because we all need to talk about them and be aware of them. Hey, everybody, if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com. This is a Bunker Crew Media production hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Camara, with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben, Brett, and Jordi Micellis of Midas Media. Theme music by Oreste Camara. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts. There's been eight Interpol arrest warrants issued by Russia against me. I was arrested in Madrid, threatened with death, with kidnapping. They've sued me all over the world. Magnitsky, an anti-corruption lawyer, uncovered what he believed was a huge tax fraud involving Russian officials. I got to know Sergei as we were being targeted by the Putin regime. He testified against those officials and the police officers who were assisting them. But after telling the authorities, he was arrested in 2008. They put him in cells with feces on the floor. It took away his ability to boil water so he had to drink the poisonous prison water and develop pancreatitis and gallstones. Instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell that chained him to a bed and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat him for one hour and 18 minutes until he died. And they killed him because of me. The Russian government says the cause of death was heart failure. Vladimir Putin and his regime murdered Sergei Magnitsky 
He was 37 years old. He had a wife and two children and a big life ahead of him. It was all cut short by a bunch of greedy bastards, and I owe it to Sergei to go after those people and make sure that they really regret to the end of their lives.